Oak Scotman, whatever. I, I won't say what my high school nickname was because it has no relevance whatsoever to what my character in high school was. Uh, so good to be here this morning. Such a lovely fall October day. I mean, it's cold, but this is, this is real October for us real Minnesotans. Yeah? Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, as Pete said, I'm Scott Oakman. I'm a member of the volunteer preaching team. Um, my wife, Anita, <clears throat> and I have been part of River Heights for about 28 and a half years. Um, and we live in Egan with Guinness and Amy, our two dogs. And we uh, also have four uh, young adult human children somewhere. Uh, they're off living on their own here in the Twin Cities and uh, at school in uh, St. Cloud and Duluth right now. Um, most of you know Anita better than me uh, from their from their work at from her work at uh, uh, on the sound team and alpha cooking and so on. Um, I work at Regents Hospital as a hospital psychiatrist, and that has me working a lot of Sundays, and especially has been the case this summer as we've been very short-staffed. And um, then also during the week, I work as a medical educator and associate training director for Regents Hospital and uh, Hennepin County Medical Center. So this is number five in our current sermon series, which is called Suburban Idols, which is a look at the things that we can be tempted to make more important than God in our lives, particularly here in middle America, where our consumerist culture permeates so much of what we do, how and where we live, who we associate with, even to the point that we don't even realize it sometimes. And for this series, we've defined idols as anything that we put ahead of God, especially when it comes down to where we place our trust and from where we receive our identity. And we've been looking especially at how these things interfere with us loving God and loving people and preventing us from changing the world with that love what Pete just said is the purpose of this congregation. And so far, we've examined family, possessions, politics, and security. And my topic today is the idolatry of status and comparisons. So I just wanted to stop and pray briefly right now. And I loved actually thinking about that worship song that we sang. And so I just want to pray those words again. God. Please be over our striving, our struggle, be over our future, our security, and our insecurities today. Show us what you have for us. Speak through me today. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we think of idols, I know for me a specific picture comes to mind. It's usually from the Old Testament. And... Um, an idol is something that we um, basically um, have uh, as a desire to replace a God that we can't see with something that we can see. 
And the classic example of this is from the Old Testament, and it's when the people of Israel have been miraculously bought out, brought out of Egypt, but they still get impatient and insecure. And you can read this story in Exodus chapter 32. This uh, bad picture here is from the classic movie, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Um, but the verse in Exodus says, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come on, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here. And Aaron collected their gold and melted it down and made it into the shape of a calf. And all of the people celebrated that they have a visible God. And people have spoken the last two weeks about the idolatry of politics and security. And these also, at their core, contain a desire to replace the God that we can't see with a human leader or some form of protection that we can see. So in taking up the idolatry of status, I think this is a continuation of the same theme wanting to place your trust in and take your identity from a visible, tangible measure of your intrinsic worth. We're still talking about security, but because I'm a psychiatrist, instead of talking about physical safety, we're going to talk about a different kind of insecurity. I just want to go back to something Pete talked about two weeks ago for one more Old Testament example. In the book of 1 Samuel, back in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, we read about how the people of Israel started feeling insecure. And they asked the prophet Samuel to appoint a king for them. And God tells Samuel, yeah, basically, Sam, it's me they're rejecting here. Do as they ask, but let them know it's going to cost them big time. And that's just the facts. And he does. He tells them, look, folks, this king... He's going to draft your kids for the military. He's going to make your daughters servants. He's going to take your crops. He's going to charge your protection. And don't expect God to let you out of that contract. And the people say, yeah, sure, okay, we still want a king. We want to be like all the other nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, okay, give them what they want. And Samuel goes out to find someone, and he settles on this guy named Saul, the most handsome man in all Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land, the son of a wealthy and influential man. He chose on status. And things go pretty well at first. But Saul doesn't work out so well. It turns out, that Saul has problems listening to Samuel and problems listening to God. Saul doesn't play well with others. Six chapters later, God says to Samuel, I have had it with this guy. I'm done. And Samuel's devastated. Have you ever beat yourself up over the results of one of your bad decisions? At the beginning of 1 Samuel 16, God says to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I've rejected him as king of Israel. Let's move on. 
fill up your flask with olive oil, and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I've selected one of his sons to be my king. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab, the oldest son, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by the appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Samuel summoned Shimea. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse replied. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So sometimes we make bad decisions when we're influenced by our insecurities, right? Just as an aside, one thing I really appreciate about the Bible that I think truly sets it apart from being just ancient mythology is simply how much like us, how real, normal, and relatable most of these people are. There are really no superheroes here. Israel tells the raw truth about its national origin story. And I find that stories like this make the Bible much more believable. It's a story about God at work through flawed people. So take that and think on that as you will. But much of our longing for idols is driven by our insecurity. We look to idols to protect and provide for us. Just like ancient times, we look to idols to protect us from want, to protect us from calamity, to get things for us like good crops and offspring, and to provide us with an identity, to make us look good in the sight of others. And for the idol of status, you might also just boil it down to the good old-fashioned religious term, the sin of envy, jealousy. Why do they have that and I don't? Why do they get to have a weed-free lawn and I don't? Why do they have a winning football team and I don't? If the shoe fits, I'm sorry. <laughs> Why do they have well-behaved kids and I don't? Why do they have happiness and I don't? And some of it comes down to us just having been told since we were old enough to be able to turn on a TV that you are not good enough. But 
this will fix that. You just need this toy, this bike, this lunchbox, this pair of shoes, this trapper keeper, this jacket, and then as you get older, this phone, this car, this computer, this house in that zip code and that school district. This will make you good enough in the eyes of your peers and your parents and your teachers. And this will tell the world that you are a success. You no longer need to be ashamed to go out in public. And a quick little video popped into my mind to illustrate this briefly. I apologize in advance if this is triggering for anyone. I'm happy to talk about this afterwards, but it is what occurred to me to uh, kick off this little discussion with. Well, I'm afraid we'll have to call the garage, Mrs. Olson. Oh, thank you so much. I, I hate to be such a bother. No bother at all. Well, while we're all waiting, I'll make some coffee. Don't you think she's got enough trouble? I wish I could make coffee he likes. I find you have to start with the right coffee. So I always use Folgers. All coffee's the same, Mrs. Olson. Oh, no, no. Different coffees taste different. And I think Folgers tastes best. Why is Folgers so different? It's specially blended. Joe ought to like this. Hmm, what's mountain grown? Mountain grown's the richest coffee there is. Try some. Hey, a great smell coming from your coffee pot? Uh-huh. That's good coffee. There's one more problem. Oh. We're going to have to get a bigger pot. <laughs> get Folgers mountain-grown coffee. You'll like the flavor. <laughs> so Pete very astutely pointed out at our sermon practice preview that no one actually thinks of Folgers as high-status coffee anymore. <laughs> Um, but this was like pounded into our head. I, you know, the other thing I just noticed of watching this, you know what status symbol she had that I, I think I would have killed for when I was a kid in 1970 when this commercial came out? Did you hear the electric can opener there? How cool is that? Anyway, I don't know if Mrs. Olson's mountain-grown Folgers coffee made anyone's parents' or grandparents' life appreciably better, or if it saved any of the marriages that were threatened by bad coffee in these commercials. By the way, this was one of the least shaming ones I found on YouTube. Some of them just made me think, that man is going to die in his sleep tonight. <laughs> but how about these things? Uh, any of you, um, like, sell your soul for uh, one of these? Uh, oh, oh, wait. Yeah, one of these items. Uh, little unicorn trapper keeper, anybody? Stingray bike. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles lunchbox, anybody? Huh? How do those sleepovers go with uh, the Power Rangers uh, pajamas? Did you get more playdates with the, uh, the uh, play kitchen there? How about that jacket? 
Yeah, those Air Jordans, that flip phone. How did you feel about wanting those things? How did you think that was going to change your life? And in retrospect, how was getting them worked out or not? <laughs> how was not getting them worked out for you in the long run? Perhaps you're familiar with the Dr. Seuss parable of the Sneetches. The Sneetches were creatures who lived on the beaches. And uh, the star belly Sneetches had bellies with stars. And the plain belly Sneetches had none upon theirs. And that was their existence. And obviously, it was not a good thing to not have a star. And it was a very good thing to have a star, or at least they thought so. So everything was uh, as that order had it until a man came along who was willing to apply stars to bellies for a price. And pretty soon, everybody had stars on their bellies, and the original star belly Sneetches didn't like that very much, so they paid the guy to have their stars removed. And then it became a mark of status to not have a star on your belly. And so the, new, the newly starred Sneetches started having theirs removed. And pretty soon, everyone forgot whether they had originally had a star or not. And they were all running around the beaches confused and broke. And when no one could pay for stars anymore, the guy took his machine and all their money and left. And they had to figure out a way to get along, stars or no. And that was the moral of this wonderful parable. So if you haven't had that read to you or read it to your kids, get at your local library and, and do. But the moral of the story is that when we, we just quickly learn to overvalue these symbols of status, these symbols of our worth, and begin to devalue one another and the people who lack those symbols. We love the symbol. We don't love God and we don't love people. The way we strive for status and compare ourselves against one another is particularly at the forefront of my mind right now because at work I'm in the middle of the uh, residency selection process. Every year at this time we're screening over 700 applications for residencies. Uh, we got 760-some applications, uh, all of them hoping that we're going to offer them one of our 80 or 90 interview slots uh, over the next couple of months to try for eight openings in our intern class next June. Um, and this is not a prestige program. We're not a high-status psychiatry training program. We are based at community hospitals, not a high-status university hospital. This is in the middle of the country, not a Ivy League institution on the coast. Um, we are in the frozen north. I mean, we like it here, right? I mean, we've all grown up here. We, we love the Midwest. But um, believe it or not, there are people who think that's more prestigious to uh, live on the coast for some reason, and they pay the premium to do so.
But the anxiety and insecurity about getting an interview is just palpable. And you can go online to various forums and just see people crying and begging for interviews. It, 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 it breaks your heart. And for 25 years or so, I've been formally or informally advising medical students and pre-medical students and residents, and I get the same questions every year. What kind of extracurriculars should I be doing to look best? As though, they, as though we want something other than what they love doing. As though there's some magic formula just to look good. Should I go to an Ivy League school or should I stay closer to my family? My advisor says my scores are good enough to get into cardiology at a name brand university. Isn't that better for my career than going into primary care the way I want to? And this is the real heartbreaker for me. My family keeps asking why I don't want to be a real doctor. My family keeps asking me that. <laughs> What's interesting is that every year we get, you know, three or four at least applications from people in medicine, family practice, even surgery saying, I think I made a mistake. Could I apply to psychiatry this year? At 24, 25, people don't know what they really want to be when they grow up. Based on a three or four week rotation in a specialty, it's hard. And um, it, it's hard to know just what qualities really go in to choosing that. And this whole process starts even earlier. Before this madness of specialty selection, there was the competition of even getting into medical school and the worries about college selection and the questions of how does my undergrad institution affect my options for medical school? And it becomes incredibly common for uh, high school students to spend thousands of dollars just traveling around and visiting campuses all over the country to try to find the right one to give them the best options to get into the professional school in law or business or medicine that they think that they want or they think that their parents think that they want and they may not even want those things. And it's not even the students who are influenced by these insecurities. You see university administrators doing anything they can to try to improve their ratings on the U.S. News and World Report rankings, which are as meaningless as preseason NCAA basketball rankings. Please don't get me started. Um, I'm already started. You've got um, parents and students tearing their hair out over entrance exams and application essays. You have unfortunate pressures to cheat, you feel kids, you see kids who are feel so driven to succeed in activities or studies that they don't even enjoy or love anymore, and getting set up for burnout and worse in later life. Even Hollywood celebrities feeling like they need to cheat, to game the system, to bribe their way in to get their children into an elite university. All of this because of the insecurity and fear of not being good enough drives us ever deeper 
into a more and more toxic dependence on idols of our own making. This is my world, and I talk about it because it's what I live in every day. But I don't want to overemphasize the world of academic status or imply that university educations are the only things that matter. Please don't misunderstand me. No one should feel that their job, their occupation, is unimportant. Steve Lamson and I go around about this all the time, about the importance of the skilled trades. Um, one of my best friends here and preaching team co-members, Steve Weber, can bend metal with his bare hands and the force of his will. I, did I say Steve Weber? I meant Don Weber. I, I knew a Steve Weber long ago. I'm losing, losing it. Um, unfortunately, Don couldn't be here today. Um, I had a public health teacher once who said that the most important job in the entire city of Minneapolis was the person at the city um, public works department that turns the valve that puts precisely the right amount of chlorine into the water supply to kill bacteria so that we don't all get cholera from the public water supply. We would not last four hours of an eight-hour shift at the hospital without the work of our environmental services department. And in fact, some of those environmental services folks are better at picking up when one of our patients is in distress than our nursing staff are. I also think about my favorite server at Egan Arms, Hannah, who it turns out without any formal training is a heck of a pastry chef and has now been elevated to the person who designs and creates the dessert of the month every month at Egan Arms. So you've got to get there before October's over and get the pumpkin tres leches, right? Neil <laughs> offers his endorsement as well. And if Neil offers his endorsement, now that's a man who knows his desserts. Any occupation is valuable. The Bible says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Any occupation, no matter how humble, can also be an idol if it becomes your identity or what you place your trust in. If you rely on that identity to make you whole or significant in the eyes of others. I think of how auto workers and farmers put so much stock in their identity in those occupations that when the economy turned and those occupations went away, they were lost. They didn't know who to turn to or who they were. But our occupations are not the only things that we put trust in for status. How about our communities, our homes, our lawns? How many of you have watched HGTV and said, why doesn't my home look like that? I was remembering a very prosperous community that Anita and I visited on vacation once a few years ago. 
one villa in particular displayed its owner's status by having floors that were elaborate marble mosaics. It had a fabulous manicured private garden and even a tiled fountain with a custom bronze stout sculpture in the center. One problem, the volcano outside of town didn't care. Pompeii um, status was no protection in Pompeii. Masters and servants all suffered the same fate. And it reminded me of a story that Jesus told in Luke 12. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all of my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you'll die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. So how do I put my relationship with God first? How can I make sure that I'm making that relationship rich and not just playing to my fears and insecurities. With so many things, the way of Jesus is to do the opposite of what our idolatrous tendencies want to do. He goes on in the rest of chapter 12 to tell you more. To overcome fear, build trust and contentment. This is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. This is where he says, think about the birds and the lilies. He explicitly says, do not fear, little flock. God cares about you. He says, to overcome the love of money and possessions, sell them and give them to those in need and to overcome the idolatry of status, serve others. To go back to the example of sifting through hundreds of residency applicants, what are we really looking for? I'm not looking for GPAs or test scores or academic pedigrees. I'm looking for humility, a desire to serve the mentally ill. I'm looking for teamwork. I'm looking for experience serving other people. And in Mark 10, we see that Jesus had to deal with a lot of insecure people trying to nail down most favored status with him. He had these two brothers who followed him around, James and John, and they came over and spoke to him and said, teacher, we want you to do us a favor. What do you want, he said. <clears throat> they replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in the places of honor next to you, one to the right and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. 
are you so sure about this? Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh yeah, we're able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering, but I have no right to say who's going to sit on my right or left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the world, rulers in this world lord is over their people and officials flaunt it, their authority over those under them. But among you it must be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way to gain status in the kingdom of God is to serve. Jesus' idol busters are giving, trusting, and serving. I have my idol busters yet? There we go. Gay helped me make that graphic, just so that'd be memorable for you, okay? Give, trust, and serve. That busts the idol of status. Because our striving after status is driven by insecurity, the fear that we are not enough. And Jesus says, yeah, so what? I know you're not enough. I am enough. Be content with that. Paul picks up this theme in Philippians 4. And I got it up there in the Revised Standard Version because that's how I learned it. Not that I complain of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. So I'm going to have the worship team come up and help us close in a time of response through prayer and worship. But I think this is a fitting verse for us to be closing with. I don't want you to leave you with the impression that I have got this figured out. Because believe me, I live in my insecurities as much or more as the next guy. And if any of you want to ask Anita, she will confirm that for you. But I have known how to have status, and I have known life without. I grew up in smallish towns in Iowa and southwest Minnesota in the 60s and the 70s. I moved off enough that I was always the new kid, the smart kid, and also, unfortunately, the fat kid. And by the time I was a teen, I got to add son of the unemployed alcoholic to that resume. 
but I went to the U of M supposedly to prepare for medical school. And I found a group of people who loved Jesus and loved me. And that verse is from a Philippians Bible study that first fall quarter. And that's why I chose the RSV. And so I've been working on this for 40 some years. I diverted to campus ministry for six years, grad school for five more. I made my wife and kids live on a shoestring in places like Frogtown in St. Paul and Ypsilanti, Michigan. But I still eventually made it to med school and into psychiatry. Finally to this place where it's still my privilege to serve the marginalized, the mentally ill, the young, the queer, the poor, the hopeless, the curious, all of whom he loves just as much as he has loved me. So if you're at the place where you would like to start that journey with him, regardless of your insecurities today, come on up and get some prayer today or leave us a note on your connection card. Jesus would love to help us help you with fear and insecurity today and into this week. So if you fear, fear or feel that you're not measuring up, that's not a thing of God. I want you to have the assurance that God looks on your heart. And if we could have some folks from the prayer team up here at the front as well to pray with you about these things or anything else that you need. That's what we do here, and um, I'm grateful for that. So please come up and receive prayer and um, get to know Jesus. We've got some tips to help you take in this week. Please read the rest of Luke 12. What wonderful verses of assurance and care. Pray that insecurity would be replaced with God's real presence in your life um, instead of an idol. And uh, notice people around you who are serving and uh, say thank you to them. Thank them for their service. And thank you for listening. In Jesus' name, amen.